I had to drop her off between 1.20 and 1.30. No, no, no! Oh, God, no! What, what was she wearing? I'm innocent. I'm Randy Page. Welcome to Flawed Justice, the Kimberly Long story. In this episode, we'll go deep into the evidence in this case as the experts weigh in. A retired homicide detective who solved one of the nation's biggest murder mysteries, the infamous Night Stalker case. There's a bunch of unanswered questions. A well-known criminal defense attorney the evidence of her guilt is just not there. A retired investigator who saw all of the testimony and the evidence in the murder trial. I like to believe that our justice system is actually a search for the truth. And the dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law. This is an enormously troubling case. Before we get started, I want to mention something. I chose these experts because of their vast experience and reputations, and I tried not to influence them in any way. I gave them access to the evidence I've gathered in my investigation, and I simply asked them to share their professional impressions from the evidence. Episode 4, The Experts. My name is Gil Carrillo, work for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, 38 years of which 26 were spent working Sheriff's Homicide Bureau. I've known Gil Carrillo for years, and I can tell you he is a big man with a big heart. For more than two decades, he was a towering figure in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department's Homicide Bureau, which happens to be the largest sheriff's department in the nation. And over his long career, he solved hundreds of murder cases, including one of the biggest serial murder cases in the nation's history. I'm sure you heard about it, the infamous Night Stalker case. Richard Ramirez, who was an insane Satan worshiper, murdered 14 people in a series of home invasions in the mid-1980s. After Gill arrested him, he had a lot of crazy things to say inside the court. I will be avenged. Lucifer dwells within us all. And he later received 13 death sentences. This trial is a joke. In the Night Stalker case, we ultimately ended up filing 14 counts of murders. And, and different kinds, different methods, different... And so it was... It's a great learning case. Gill agreed to examine the evidence in this case. He read the court filings, examined crime scene photographs, he looked at police reports, and he watched videotape police interrogations. What bothers you the most about this case? The lack of evidence. What's going on, man? I just came home. When Kimberly Long dialed 911 and screamed for help on October 6, 2003, phone records show it was 2.09 in the morning. She told police she walked through the door, found her boyfriend, Ozzy Condi, unconscious and bloody, and she immediately called for help. We also know the man who dropped her off, Jeff Dills, told police he watched her walk through her door at about 1.20 in the morning. I had to drop her off between 
120 and 125. Now, if that's true, what was she doing for those 49 minutes before she dialed 911? Police concluded that's when she murdered Ozzy. What did you do for the almost 55 minutes from the time she oh dropped you off? No! But Gil Carrillo says he is bothered by Jeff Dill's timeline. Remember, Dills died in a motorcycle accident before he could testify at Kimberly's murder trial. His brief testimony at a previous preliminary hearing was read back to the jury, but the jury never had a chance to even see him, let alone watch what he had to say. Her attorney never had a chance to cross-examine him on the witness stand, and yet Dills was providing the critical testimony the prosecution needed to convict her. You know, this timeline, which really disturbs me because you, you have to believe that what he's saying is absolutely true. And not to say that he's intentionally lying, but I don't know how much he had been drinking that night. I don't know if he looked at the clock. Maybe his clocks were off, you know, because that's what they're basing the timeline on, his statement. Prosecutors told the jury Kimberly walked through the door, beat Ozzy to death, cleaned up, changed her clothes, got rid of the murder weapon, and then called for help. But the trouble is there was no physical evidence to back up this theory. No murder weapon was found, no bloody clothes, no fingerprints, no palm prints or shoe prints in the bloody smears on the walls and floor, no evidence the sinks, shower, bathtub, drains, washer and dryer were used to clean up, no damp towels, no sign of a murder weapon or any blood in either of their cars, no witnesses and no confessions. There's not a bunch there. You know, there's no fingernail scrapings from him that shows any DNA of any struggle that went on. She doesn't have blood on her other than taking a bunch of uh, photographs. You know, there's not a lot, lot there. But there was one important element that the killer did leave behind, blood. A fine mist of blood on the walls in a 360 degree circle around Ozzy's body. There was blood on the furniture, the TV, the curtains, the blinds, the doors, and the floor. What, what was she wearing? She was wearing... Then there's the explosive evidence the jury never had a chance to see. A black t-shirt that had some designs on thinking biker or rock and roll stuff or something. That's Jeff Dills in a videotaped police interview describing the clothes Kimberly was wearing when he dropped her off on the night of the murder. He's describing the same clothes she was wearing when police arrived moments after she placed the 911 call. Police took the clothes and they tested them and there was no blood on them. When I showed Dill's videotape statement to two of the jurors who convicted her, they said it proves Kimberly didn't kill Ozzy. Based on the clothing, she couldn't have done it. As foreman of this jury, if you'd seen this evidence, what would have been your verdict? Uh, not guilty. Remember, during her trial, prosecutors convinced the jury Kimberly must have changed out of her bloody clothes. But you know what? Now it appears they've changed their mind about that. In a court hearing a couple of years ago, one of the prosecutors said Kimberly did not change her clothes. So what's their new theory? I'd love to ask them, but they're not commenting on the case while it's still active. But according to court documents, the prosecutors are now saying that most of the blood was on the living room's northeast wall. So, prosecutors say, if Kimberly had been standing in just the right place northwest of Ozzy, no blood would have landed on her. Gil Carrillo doesn't buy it. Uh, there's a bunch of blood, there is blood spattering, uh, it's cast off blood, and whoever did that, since there's blood 360 degrees, would have had blood on them, uh, unless they were wearing 
paper jumpsuits like they give the criminals sometimes when they go out there or when you go visit somebody in a hospital and then they just rip that off and take it with them. You know, they've got to have blood on them. As for Dill's statement to police about the clothes she was wearing when he dropped her off? Well, it's extremely important because that goes to the entire weight of did she do it or not? How did she miraculously beat him, blunt force trauma, without getting any blood on her? I, I, I don't understand it. And if she did a quick change at 40 minutes, okay, where's the clothes that she was wearing when she did it? Because now what you're saying, she got home, she got out of the clothes that she was wearing when she got home, then she attacked him, then she put her clothes back on and cleaned up. Where are the old clothes? If she did not leave the residence, and I have to believe that she discovered, you know, the body. She wasn't there when that, I, I would say she wasn't even there in the room when that, without any evidence of blood on her. I, I just can't, how uh, it's impossible after as many cases I've looked at, it's impossible for me to fathom how she could do this without getting a droplet. And criminals in the laboratory, they go over things with a fine-tooth comb, and they should, you know, chemically, it should light up like a Christmas tree. Gil Carrillo told me he shared the details of this murder case to a close friend who's a retired L.A. County deputy district attorney. I just talked to him yesterday. He said, Gil, I never would have filed this case. And my response was, well, I never would have presented it. Assuming Kimberly Long killed Oswaldo Condi, given the evidence we know in this case, tell me how she did it. I can't. I can't say how she did it because there is no weapon. There is nothing to indicate to me because if there's no weapon and she's got no blood, well then, how do you do it? You know, unless you know, she's a magician that can do sleight of hands, I, I have no idea. So I, I can't tell you. If this had been your case, what would you have done? I'd still be investigating it. I can't imagine me trying to file this, I'm just as concerned for trying to convict an innocent person as trying to save myself from being embarrassed on the stand. I still have a, a reputation of integrity and honesty and being a decent, if semi-decent investigator. And I haven't had any of my cases overturned over the years. And uh, so I, I don't think that I would have filed this case. But we got to be able to answer the question, why does she have no blood on her? Why does she not have blood on other clothing? There's just unanswered questions. This can truly happen to anybody. Criminal defense attorney, Allison Treasel. You are a prominent defense attorney. You've handled a lot of high profile cases. When you look at the facts of this case, what is your conclusion? When I look at this case, I don't think that Kimberly Long killed Ozzy. I really don't think that she did. And Randy, I've been handling serious cases for over 20 years. It is rare that I believe that somebody is factually innocent. And in fact, in the many, many murder cases that I've had, I've only had a few where I've said, you know what, they could not, it's possible that they didn't do it. I had one case where I was absolutely certain she didn't do it, and in that case, it was dismissed. That's what should happen in this case. Why? Because the evidence of her guilt is just not there. 
Allison Treasel is also troubled that the jury never had a chance to watch Jeff Dills on the witness stand and see what he would have had to say while being cross-examined by Kimberly's defense attorney. The fact that this woman's conviction rested solely on information that was provided by somebody who also had a motivation to lie because he was considered a suspect at the time, that that statement was never thoroughly investigated by the police. It went unchallenged. It went completely unchallenged. And that's the information that they used to convict this woman. It just isn't enough. Then there's the Jeff Dills statement to police about the clothes Kimberly was wearing that night. What, what was she wearing? She was wearing... Um... Clothes that had no blood on them. It's a pivotal, pivotal question in the case. Nobody commits crimes like this in the naked. It doesn't happen. So any idea that she took off her clothes, committed this heinous crime, blood everywhere, washed off somewhere, not in a sink, not in a shower, but in a jacuzzi or anywhere else, is, and then put those clothes back on, that's preposterous. And maybe things like that happen on TV shows, but in real life, nobody has the fortitude, or the, the presence of mind, to strip down naked, put a shower cap on, and make sure that not only did no blood get on them, but they don't use the shower, the sink, or any other watering facility other than a jacuzzi. That's insanity. That did, that did not happen. Most importantly, most importantly, if the jurors were told that the clothes she had on all night were the same clothes that she was wearing when the police arrived, and there was not a speck of blood on them, it is a, a very, very reasonable inference that they would have found her not guilty. The judge said that, the judge said, look, this comes down, and you ask why this is so pivotal, because the judge himself said, if she changed clothes, she killed Ozzy. If she didn't, she did not kill Ozzy. That is a piece of evidence that is not just critical to the case, it is the only piece of evidence that matters, and the jury was not given that information. How can you say that this woman had a fair trial when the most relevant piece of evidence was never shown or discussed with the jury? Allison Treasel says Kimberly's original attorney, public defender Eric Keene, should have fought to get Jeff Dill's statement about Kimberly's clothes into the trial and in front of the jury. I think that that was a critical error. Remember, the judge who presided over Kimberly's murder trial agreed and set her free after she spent seven years in prison. But a state court of appeal reinstated her conviction, ruling her public defender did a reasonably good job defending her, so she got a fair trial. Allison Treasel says the appellate court got it wrong. Kimberly's attorney was not effective, period. This is a ruling on whether the legal definitions of ineffective assistance of counsel, federal rules of evidence, whether they were fairly applied. That's it. So the question of whether somebody murdered somebody and should spend the rest of their life was never addressed by this court because it doesn't matter. Why? Because to them, they need to 
keep an established precedent. And the rule of law is more important to them on whether someone did or did not commit a crime. So it doesn't matter to them that as a result of this ruling, a innocent person may very well spend the rest of their life in prison because their legal definition of ineffective assistance of counsel was not met. Something is wrong with the system, Randy, when that's how you look at a murder case. Remember the foreman of the jury, Stephen Roberge? He told me if he'd seen Jeff Dill's statement about Kimberly's clothes that had no blood on them during the trial, he would have found her... Uh, not guilty. No question. No question. But then he said this. Doesn't mean that she wasn't in on it, but uh, she's not clean on this deal. There's just no way. I asked the jury foreman if he knows of any evidence that Kimberly could have been involved in the murder. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a feeling, it's emotion, and a lot of that is driven by her reaction when we read the verdict. Right. She smirked. When, uh, when I looked at her and she looked at me and went, mm -hmm. I went, wow, that's what a convicted murderer does? You know? That's certainly not what an innocent person does. You know. I see. So that still sticks with you after all these years? I, I can see it just as clear as day. Allison Treasel's thoughts? We're all human. And jurors come into a case with preconceived notions, with life lessons, with a, that gut feeling, and that's unavoidable. That is unavoidable. So if it was what he needed to get him to that place of conviction, and he said, look, I looked at her, and she knew I knew. That's how he was able to convict and feel okay with it. There was a seasoned investigator who witnessed all of the testimony and the evidence in the trial. He's a retired arson investigator. His name is Arnie White. Remember, he's one of the jurors who agreed to talk to us. We took it a, an immediate snap count and uh, it was 11 to one in favor of conviction. I was the holdout because I wanted to talk about the clothes. Arnie White says he wanted to know if Kimberly's clothes had any blood on them, but he never got an answer to that question during the trial. I feel like the jury was manipulated by not seeing this evidence. So if the prosecutor is, is charged with bringing out the truth, why not bring this out? Why not explain it? If, if as a prosecutor you believe you're bringing the right case with the right defendant for the right crime, then you have to, in your mind, explain this. I like to believe that our justice system is actually a search for the truth and that we don't have to put so much uh, weight in our previous actions that we have to defend them, that we can't step back and say, maybe we made a mistake. You know, based on the information that we had and the instructions we had in the jury room, I think we came to the right conclusion. But I think that the court failed us in not giving us this. This is, this is very, very important information that points to her innocence. She has failed more than anyone else, as is Ozzy. And, and his parents, his family, that should be where this truth is going for. We have somebody that's accused of murder, and we're kind of focusing on her, and it's very important. But on the other hand, 
We have somebody that was murdered and, and his loved ones deserve justice. And if they're, if they're about to see a party that did not commit the murder put in jail for the murder, I guess that also follows that we're done looking for who actually did this. The, the prosecution's theory that she committed the crime is disproven by these clothes, in my opinion. But is the prosecution's theory disproven? I must tell you I've consulted with at least 10 law enforcement sources, police, public defenders, former prosecutors, coroner investigators, law professors. I asked every one of them the same question. Assuming Kimberly Long is guilty, tell me how she did it. Well, each and every one of them said they can't. They can't tell me how she did it because there's not enough evidence and too many unanswered questions. Now, Corona police and prosecutors clearly believe the evidence proves beyond a reasonable doubt Kimberly is guilty, but they won't talk about the case until the legal challenges are over. Well, I will continue to ask them the same question I've asked everybody else. If Kimberly Long is guilty, given the evidence, how did she do it? Legally, here's where it stands as of now. The state appellate court's ruling that reinstated Kimberly's conviction is on hold because the California Supreme Court is going to hear the case. Professor Erwin Chemerinsky, who's dean of UC Berkeley School of Law and also a leading constitutional scholar, says Kimberly's case illustrates the need for a new legal path innocent prisoners can take. He calls it a standalone claim of innocence that doesn't have to be tied to a mistake that was made in the trial. Remember, Kimberly was not allowed to ask an appellate court to rule on whether Dill's statement about her clothes proved her innocence. She had to tie her claim to the argument her defense attorney was ineffective. The United States Supreme Court should make clear that actual innocence is a basis for federal courts giving relief on habeas corpus. That imprisoning, putting death, an innocent person is itself a constitutional violation. So you see this as a real troubling case? This is an enormously troubling case. You have the trial court judge saying that the judge believes that she's innocent. You have the judge who authored the Court of Appeals decision for the Ninth Circuit saying that the state very likely has got the wrong person. And yet, no one's willing to provide the necessary relief. My hope is that the California Supreme Court stepping in will see that justice is done here. A call for justice that can last a lifetime. Kimberly Long has already spent the past 15 of her 42 years fighting her conviction. The next step is the California Supreme Court. And her attorney says the Supreme Court could take a couple of more years and at the end of that could decide to send her back to prison. If the high court rules in her favor and removes her conviction, the district attorney could choose to try her all over again. And then the process goes back to square one and starts all over. Innocence Project Director, Justin Brooks. It's a crapshoot, and even in a case where there's strong evidence of innocence, you can still lose. Kimberly Long may have one last hope, an appeal to Governor Jerry Brown. If the governor gives her a pardon, her criminal conviction would disappear. She could go back to nursing, and she could live the rest of her life as if the jury never convicted her. Here's juror Arnie White. What would you say as one of the 12 jurors who convicted her? What would you tell the governor today? Give her a pardon. 
I would. Based on this information, uh, I think that would be the only responsible thing to do. And, uh, and lecture the justice system. You got to do better. The governor also has the option to offer her clemency. The murder conviction would stay on her record, but she would be able to live the rest of her life without the fear of going back to prison. Here's Justin Brooks. And this is a perfect example where clemency would be appropriate. We have a case where there's compelling evidence of innocence, where one of his judges who works for the state of California believes she's innocent, where the system has failed. This is exactly the appropriate type of case where the governor should come in and grant clemency and end this nightmare. If the governor were sitting here today, what would you tell him? I'd say, Governor Brown, I'm not even asking you to declare Kimberly Long innocent. I'm asking you to recognize that there's a case here with compelling evidence of innocence where this young woman has suffered years of incarceration, where no one can look at this case and not see doubt all over it. Please grant her clemency. This story is far from over, so be sure and subscribe to this podcast. When we release new episodes, you will be the first to know. And if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Flawed Justice is produced by Randy Page and edited by Richard Alvarez, associate producer B.J. Dahl. If you have any information on this case, I would love to hear from you. You can get a hold of me directly through our website, flawedjustice.com. Also on the website, you can watch the interviews and police interrogations, look at crime scene photos, and you can see television news stories I produced on the Kimberly Long case, and much more. We will also have links you can go to if you'd like to get involved, either to support Kimberly or the police and prosecutors, or just stop by and share your thoughts. We would love to hear from you. Again, that's flawedjustice.com. If you would like to learn more about Kimberly Long's case and other Innocence Project cases, you can go to the California Innocence Project's website, and it's easy to remember, californiainnocenceproject.org. Original theme and music composed and performed by Randy Page, with additional contributions by Megatracks. Special thanks to the folks at CBS in Los Angeles, including President and General Manager Steve Malden, Vice President and News Director Tara Feinstone, Director of Digital Content B.J. Dahl, Assistant News Director Jennifer Pierce, Managing Editor Paul Button, and Producer Jerry Constant. Flawed Justice is a production of CBS Los Angeles and KCBS-TV. Thanks for listening.